My guest today hardly needs an introduction. In 1974, a young 15-year-old North Carolina native strapped himself into a 1955 Chevrolet Bel Air and began his drag racing career. Since then, he's amassed over 200 victories, earned the right to call his fabled hot rod the world's fastest 55 Chevy, and somewhere along the way established himself as the godfather of Pro Modified. Here early in 2019, he made headlines when he debuted a 1968 Chevy Camaro Pro Mod in Outlaw 8th Mile Competition, which likely broke a few hearts, but immediately reminded the masses of what he was capable of with modern equipment. Having been in the mix for over 45 years, his perspective is invaluable, and I literally couldn't wait to have him on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Carpenter. The thing that I wanted to start with here real quickly, and, and this is funny because I think, and I'm not, I'm not completely sure, Charles, if this is true, but I think one of my first encounters with you and your son, uh, Michael, was right around kind of at the height of IHRA Pro Mod drama. The blower cars were going really fast. The nitrous cars were running like mid-16s and kind of behind the eight ball a little bit, and it's funny because all these years later, I think that was like around 2006, Mike and I had just met, I think, and right. here we are all these years later, and it's funny that the situation really hasn't changed a whole lot, and I'm just curious if you could kind of give us a little perspective before we, well, I mean, I guess, can you give me a little bit of perspective what that moment in time was like, because a lot of people point to those mid-2000s as, you know, the the glory days, if you will, the thing I always hear is, 50 cars at Rockingham, right? And racing all night and tons of cars and all this interest in Pro Modified. I mean, can you take us back, you know, to that time a little bit and what that was like to be? I mean, you'd seen it at its infancy, but to kind of see it at that moment, what was that like for you? Well, you know, along to me, along at that time, it seemed like just about one out of every 10 people that you met had a Pro Mod in their garage. And... You know, I'm probably exaggerating, but, I mean, the amount of cars, and there probably are still a lot of those cars sitting around in people's shops that are just sitting there collecting dust today. But at those events, like you're talking about, you know, it was nothing to have 50 cars. You know, there were there would be 50 cars trying for the 16 slots, and, you know, the Pro Mod pits look like the, you know, it looked like the Super Stock pits or whatever. There'd just be so many cars. And, um, you know, it was when, to me, it was at the beginning of time when you could, you you could buy a pro mod car in the early days of pro mod racing. We've talked about this before. You had to have a lot of self innovation. You know, there was parts and pieces out there and everything, but my favorite saying was you had all, you could buy the ingredients, but only a few people had the recipe and, that's kind of how it went, but it, along in that era that we're talking about is when it started. Now, it, it was not near as, as good as it is today about buying that same package, but it was being able to buy that, that car. If you, you know, and, and the, the production of the cars were stepped up, you know, Bickle was building cars like crazy, and, and, and everybody, you know, everybody that was anybody in, in pro mod building or whatever, you know, was turning out cars. Tommy Mooney was building cars and, and, you know, everybody was, was putting them out there, but it was, it was crazy the amount of them. And of course, from my perspective, there were more nitrous cars there, 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 for the most part during that time, there were always way more nitrous cars. And 
you know, that's where all that started about, you know, in, in my eyes, the demise of IHRA. And if you remember the letter that, that you know, I wrote, the, the state of drag racing or whatever, actually, Michael, you know, I talked about it. Michael made me sound like I knew what I was talking about. And and we composed it. But if you dig that letter up on the Internet. I read it last night. Read it, yeah. It just about every bit of it came true. And, and it's amazing you know, to think that it was you you kind of nailed it and if anybody doesn't know the letter we're talking about Charles you guys put out like a, a statement on Nitrous Pro Mod Racing in like I said I think around mid 2000s and I encourage anybody that doesn't know it to look it up cuz it is crazy to think about how dead on really it was looking forward that hey there's a problem and what I think the thing that's hardest for me to kind of wrap my head around is that damn it, we're having that same problem today. We've never, I don't know that collectively as a sport, and obviously I agree, I think this was probably the end of the IHRA. I mean, that as soon as they started to lose a hold on ProMod, that was, I mean, because you think about what ProMod means to the NHRA today, or the fact that ProMod props up a handful of organizations throughout the country, it's hard to believe that the IHRA ever could have allowed that deal to fall apart the way they did. It's, you know, looking back on drag racing, I say this almost every time I go to a race and look at the, the stands and there's nobody there. It's like I, I think back, you know, I reminisce about the IHRA days. I mean, how could something like that just let the wheels fall off of it? Because it was such a, you know, it was such a, a huge success and it was like, how do you let that fall apart? I mean, but, you know, you can go back and dissect it and you can see it, but you started eliminating the majority of the people. You know, you start doing away with classes, you know, like super stock classes and, and modified classes where you had all these cars and they were specialty cars, you know, just like kind of like NHRA did with Pro Stock Truck. It was a specialty product and it wasn't something that you were going to go race just somewhere else or, or anywhere. And, you know, they just they just let the wheels run off of this deal that was such a huge success. And, and I can remember we, we were just at Darlington here a few weeks ago for a race. And I can remember getting in line on Thursday or either early Friday morning, maybe. I can't my, I may have my days mixed up. But getting in line and being three miles down the road from the racetrack. And the, the track was full, you know, the entranceway to the track was full, and it lined out on the road and be two to three miles down this road waiting to get in, participants waiting to get in. It's amazing. And, there was, and, and, and you, know how, you know how big Darlington is as far as just the, the, the amount of real estate that's there. And cars were parked down all the way to the first turnoff that's on the racetrack. And they were just like they were they were almost out of room and at that time up behind the tower and everything was it was still grass then. It was it wasn't like it is today. But it was just unbelievable. And and it's just I, I just I am simply amazed of how that how it fell apart. But but yeah, I mean to, to not get too far far off our subject there, but you know, in in that time it was such a it was such a big thing. I mean, the, then the ADRL thing came along, you know, about that time. And, and there again, you know, we'd have 40, 50 cars, uh, you know, for, for Pro Nitrous. Uh, 
And, you know, there was a lot of blower cars. There was, you know, it, it was the perfect scenario. You know, it was what we were, it was what we always were trying to do in IHRA to, to separate the cars if they couldn't make parity. Right. You know, and, and to separate the cars and, and give us somewhere for each of us to race. And it was just a, it was the perfect scenario. And, you know, and now fast forward here to, to 2018, 2019, and it's kind of the same thing has happened to those blower cars. They're all gone. You know, there is no pro extreme and there's nowhere for those guys to race because the same thing has happened. A few cars have basically taken over and, you know, back to the whole thing. I mean, uh, the the origin of what made it start falling apart is, I mean, a guy can't go but just so long and know that qualifying is basically all he could do. I mean, it's hard to roll in the gate and, and be a competitor and, and not think that you can win the race. But that's how it got, you know. And IHRA let the blower cars dominate so long and so much that, and there was only a handful of them. That was what I kept telling them. You you have 25 or 30 nitrous customers over here, and you're catering to five or six blower cars. I mean, are you going to lose your 30 customers for six? I mean, think about it. I, and, it's a weird you know, thing. It really is because you're right. I mean, it happened in the thing. I mean, it feels it's eerie almost because here we are all these years later, and it's the – virtually the exact same story you know and it, it just it is and <sighs> yeah it, it's turbo now you know yep. it's, it's a turbo class and nhra nhra did the best job that anybody has ever done about making parity and making all those cars be able to compete together three or four years ago but you know when things started changing they didn't address it fast enough and then now it's let the guys that are able, you know, build turbo cars. And I have nothing against anybody's power adder. Whatever you want to use, there isn't there. I have nothing against it at all. But all I want to do is just have a just have a fair race. I just want to compete in a in a, on an even playing field. That's that's all I want. Whatever it takes to make it even, you know. But I don't want, you know. I know. You know, just the weather. The weather changes, or that you know, that's going to always be there. Certain times of the year, each power adder is going to have its its heyday, and you can't really change that. But the rest of the time, it should be, you know, a, a fairly reasonable. If you have, if you're, a, you know, you have top notch equipment and you're a you're a top ten car, or you know, or a top ten capable car, you know, you should be able to race. But, you know, you could go over there and, and, you know, just race, do every, throw everything you got at it. And, you know, just, you know, just like in NHRA, Chad Green, you know, he's the front runner nitrous car over there right now. And he qualifies great, but then, you know, they can't keep it together on race day because of the inconsistency of a nitrous car when you're trying to run it past its limits, so to speak. Yeah, consistently. And, yeah, you're constantly yeah, forced to swing yeah. for the fences. Right. Yeah, when you're having to swing, when you swing for the fence, you know you're only going to make it one out of three, four, five times if you're lucky, if it's that low. And But the rest of the time, you know, you're not going. And 
it's um i don't know it's sad it's sad and i still think you look at just look at pdra look at the, the nitrous cars are still you know they're they there's more of them there's more that want to race but you know they're being weeded out by the the top guys i mean you know the front runners but still there is that there's a larger number of cars that are capable of going rounds there than than in any other class you know but it's crazy, man. I got to ask. I mean, I think that there's a weird, well, a couple of things, because I want to I want to make sure we do some reminiscing and, and talk about those heady, you know, times of the I-Tray and the even the mm-hmm. ADRL. But this I can't I don't, I don't want to skip over some of the stuff that we've kind of led up to here. One of the things I want to talk about is how hard is it for someone who's seen had a front row seat to this, like been involved, had a, a been dealt in to this poker game for almost 50 years, right? Five decades. You've right. seen this thing right. from, you know, small block Chevys to 900 inch, you know, rear motors, five, three bore space motors. It's unbelievable, mm-hmm. really. Is it hard for you to wrap your head around? Because, I mean, I was reading that letter last night, and I mean, we've uh, many racers have talked about that move. It seemed like whenever everybody was running those 706s, there was a lot of reliability there. You saw guys not have, you know, not hurting stuff all the time. The the valve train was very reliable. Um, you know, guys would run several races, if not a season, on a set of valve springs, right? I mean, it just was a more, oh, yeah. Yeah. M- a more, uh, um, you know, friendly package. And, you know, a lot of guys, oh, the cylinders are coming out around, you know, when they made the change for, you know, when everybody went to the 728, 738. And now here we are, you know, 900 inch motors in the in the NHRA and you run one as well in 903, I believe. And then, you know, all these 950, 960 and so on inch motors in the PDRA. Is it hard for you to even believe that's the case and that you've got an engine that'll that'll stay together at all? That's 900 cubic inches and probably makes over, you know, 3000 horsepower. It is. I mean, it is. I have really, um, you know, I one one reason that that I'm still doing this is I wanted to participate in a little bit of that technology. Um, you know, I may I may never win another race again, but I, I'm I'm trying. I, I got that's what I tell Michael all the time. My goal I want to win one more race. Of course, if I were to win one, one more race, I, I I want to win another one. Yes, but you will. That's right. Right now, I'm at one more race, but to be able to to participate in this sport at this level of technology it it blows me away because yes i mean you know i did this you know using stock parts out of the box and you know doing a little modification here and there and whatever and have a good set of cylinder heads and put it on a basically stock bottom end and just all kinds of things that were just (laughs) i could tell you stories of crazy things you know cutting valve pockets with a with a with a valve with the the engine in the car and and or the block in the car and 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 cutting valve pockets to change a camshaft because you know we didn't have the we didn't have the access to a to somebody that that had a bridge port we know that could fly cut the pistons but we did it you know didn't we just we we improvised we did whatever we had to do to to race but to come to this technology now to look at this to look at the engine just just the engine it's an absolute work of art and the, the this this rear morrison uh, it's a 908 that 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 i have right now that dan stevenson has afforded me the the ability to race with is it's just it's simply amazing to look at it for the 
the just the fit and the finish and the the amount of technology that goes into everything, and then you add, add Brandon Schweitzer's uh, fuel injection on top of it, and then that's just something else that's just out of this world as far as it being, you know, something that we would actually ever see to drag race. I mean, this to me, this is like aerospace parts that you would use to, to fly the space shuttle with, and, and we're using it in drag racing here in, in 2019. It's crazy. And it really it, is. It is, and, and to sit behind this thing is like the first. I mean, I, we've only scratched the surface with it, but like the the second full pull we made on this thing, this thing ran like 377 at, at 198, and which is nothing compared to what these guys are running. But I had never, I mean, this thing, it felt like it was going to fly. You know, at, at three-quarter track, it felt like, you know, we're, you know, we're going to lift off here just any minute. <laughs> And, I mean, the acceleration, the power, I mean, the torque, I have never in my life felt anything like this. And it is just, it's indescribable almost. But, yeah, but it is, it is simply, I have to shake my head sometimes and just look at it and just unbelievable. You know, the, the bore sizes, the strokes, the, 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 you know, to think that this thing could even make, to think that it could even start up and idle much less, you know, spin it up, you know, almost 8,000 RPM. I mean, it's crazy. It's amazing to see how far this thing has come. And there's a, there's like a lot of, cause one of the things that kind of going back to that letter you guys wrote and there, the same kind of situation exists. And it's been this double edged sword of these big budget teams. Right. And there's so much, yes. there's a part of it that is so good because you know, some of that technology ends up being sold on the secondary market, right? You know, those really right. good cars yep. get sold, you know, really good engines get sold and they get sold at a reasonable price. You know, they get sold, you know, probably half what the guy gave for it or invested in it. And that's, that's a good thing for like the masses of drag racing or the people in this, you know, the, the working guy, you know, the small business owner and so on and so forth. But at the highest levels, man, it is, kind of pandemonium and that's one of the things that we're seeing over here and you touched on this I think and I don't want this you know deal to smack negative or whatever but there are some harsh realities that I wish we could get our eyes open wide enough to try to get ahead of and one of them is that I'm seeing the same thing happen in NHRA Pro Mod right now this thing has had a real lightning in a bottle kind of feel to it for the last few years a lot of interest guys lined up to to pay to go run this deal people want to be a part of that deal but we've kind of saw the writing on the wall at Virginia a few weeks ago when the car counts instead of 28, 29, 30, we're seeing 22, 23. And I think that yeah. we're going to continue to see that trend. And it's maybe it's unavoidable, Charles. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it's just the curse of heads, high-level heads-up drag racing. But, you, but you're exactly right. There's only so long that these guys that either, you know, work for a living and have a, have a, a business that affords them the opportunity to race but have to do a lot of the stuff themselves, have to tow a truck and trailer, have to set up an awning, have to do that type of thing. How long can they beat their heads against the wall, you know, and go and just feel like, hey, if we qualify, that's probably as good as it's going to get? Yeah, I mean, and that's it. You you just can't do it. I mean, you can't do it for so long. And and on the same token, on those same thoughts, the whole thing, the majority, the quantity of the racers that are out there are those people that we're talking about. There's only, 
in pro mod even you take pro mod up just go pro mod all the way to top fuel there there is small numbers of people that can do it at that level and they can't produce a race with just those few people they need all those people from from that whatever cutoff point you want to say it is down because that's what makes that's what makes it prosper and that's what makes that's what makes racing go around because it's all those guys that think they have a chance that spend that money with all these companies and they go and pay their entry fees and overnight you know, parts. I mean, yeah, it's, it is. What, those are the, the guys that, I mean, you were, we were just talking about you getting, you know, your, your Christmas morning here at Char- Carpenter mm-hmm. Automotive, all these parts showing up. I mean, it's, I remember growing up at my dad's shop, I couldn't get over how much shit we blue labeled. I mean, we were constantly overnight and stuff and, and I'm going, my God, like, but I mean, that is for me, I, if I ever have to try to describe to someone what like the typical heads up drag racer is like, I mean, that's a guy that's going to buy what he needs he's going to overnight it he's going to if he's got to work and scheme and deal and do whatever he's got to do to get what he needs to be competitive he's going to do it and you're hitting the nail on the head and it's kind of an interesting topic because i do think that sometimes and i've had this conversation with a handful of people that it's almost like sometimes the higher ups don't completely know who their customer is they want to believe that that everybody's john force right that everybody's out here with a sponsor everybody's out here operating on some sort of corporate budget you know, but that's just not the case. The masses are really, you know, the Charles Carpenters of the world, the guys that are yeah. out there, you know, taking, shutting down the shop a day earlier or whatever to take off and go drive across the country to go to a drag race. Those are the guys we've got to build this thing around. And I think on a lot of levels, we've just got it flip flopped. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and, you know, and my, and my take on this, how, how do we fix it or what do we do? is we we got to have rules there is that you know that pro mod pro mod the outlaw word outlaw pro mod is probably in my eyes the worst thing that ever happened to pro mod racing because you name any sport name me any kind of sport that has no rules there is no there is none it doesn't matter if it's a ball sport if, if, if motorsport water sports whatever you want <laughs> to right. tell me there is what tell me one of them that hasn't have no rules and that have no rules thing it sounds big it sounds good da 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 but that's what's that's what's killed our class it's what's killed all of our racing you've got to have rules i mean look at you know i always used to say look at nascar but nascar has done such a a, a poor job of keeping their stuff together but you know it's just they've made bad decisions and everything, but in their heyday and in any kind of motorsports heyday in a, in a sanctioned body, look at the rules. I mean, NASCAR would change the rules between races. It wasn't, you know, effective 30 days from now or, or whatever. NASCAR would say at the end of that race, come next race, you can't run this or you can't do this or you must weigh that or you must change this spoiler or ride height, or whatever it may be, but they were trying to make parity. They were trying to make parity. It's a, it's that sure, living rule. You're book. Always gonna you're you're always gonna have your your dominators of any kind of sport. You've always got your people that are going to be able to do it better than most of the other people. But you've got your you've got your steps of other people that can do it that feel like they have a chance. 
and you know it's how this all worked i used to say this all along that the only the reason that that drag racing and 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 nitrous was a nitrous oxide when it really came along back in the 80s and got streamlined so to speak and and it was very available it was the cheapest horsepower that you could make and and put on a car and joe anybody could get it and he could put it on his wife's you know impala if he wanted to and and drive it or he could have it on his vega bracket car or whatever but it was but they would come and see you know at that time myself and Vandegrift and and all the all the top nitrous racers you know back in that era and they would come watch us race and they left there feeling like they could do what we did because and and it made them go buy this nitrous oxide it made them go buy this kits it made them go spend money and you know in today's world we've gotten so far out of out of kilter if for if that's a if that's a proper terminology I like it it is it is there is no, you know, you couldn't have a space shuttle, you know, and get, compete with these guys today. And and to, to think about, you know, watch these guys in the heat, you know, watch Jay Cox rip off a, a 368, you know, on, in on the surface of the sun, basically, and, yeah, and 100 grains of water and and everything else. I mean, you know, it's, it's just it's out of control. It's yep. just out of control. And and have to you know, but then watch him come back and put a rack of pistons in, you know, just to be sure. Not that those pistons may be hurt, but he's he's trying to be sure. And or watch you know some of the big teams you know swap motors, and and just on and then it just goes on you know, top fuel and we don't mean you know top fuel and funny car are just indescribable. That's. <laughs> The carnage over there in parts, it's just, it just, it makes a guy like me that appreciates it, it makes me sick to look at it because it's like, like Ken Hively that's helped me in racing for years, he, he, he coined the phrase many years ago, he said to watch a top fuel car come down the track, he said it looks like it's spitting out $100 bills, you know, start line to finish line. And, and that's what it's doing. It's hard to see, but, and you're exactly right. I want to, there's one thing that I, I've found kind of, interesting with all this stuff has been that how do you say the, the the carnage aspect of it is one thing but really just the i'm trying to think of how to to phrase this where i don't piss people off that's one of the i'll tell you what man it's such a everybody's so feisty about this stuff and it, it and i think sometimes i get kind of labeled crazy or that i've that it's a pipe dream but when i think back to those heydays it was you're right, that outlaw notion really kind of screwed things up because all across the country, I remember growing up, you could look in the back of Drag Review magazine and you could look at the results of, you know, whatever race. You talked about Darlington earlier or Rockingham Spring Nationals and you could look at the qualifying results and if you, even if you didn't race in the IHRA necessarily, you didn't run IHRA national events, maybe you ran the West Coast Pro Mod Association, right? Or you ran some deal here in the Midwest. We could all gauge ourselves against you and Scotty Cannon and Shannon Jenkins, like if you guys were running 620s and we were running 640s, right? We, it, we The mm-hmm. yardstick was the same from sea to shining sea, right? And right. I think that, yep. that that 
the way that we've allowed the rule sets all across the country to kind of become bastardized. And I understand how it happens because I've ran a racetrack and I know the pinch that some of these promoters and track operators can get in. They've got a guy whose car's close, but not quite right. And they need, but they need car count. They got to put on a show. They've only got seven cars and they need eight. So you bend the rules and you never recover from it. You know, I mean, you just, you bend the rules that one time. And then the next thing you know, you've got 16 different pro mod associations on the West coast or 16 different on the East coast. And then five more in Texas and a couple in the Midwest and a handful up in the Northeast. And it's so hard because it's, it, it, in my opinion, it's a, it's a great thing because I know that it's good that there are all these different places to race, right, Charles? But it's also a bad thing, in my opinion, because it's really hard to compare, you know, Pro Mod Group A to Pro Mod Group B and C and D and on down the list. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's just, I, I don't know. And, you know, what you were hitting on there about the higher ups, you know, sometimes, you know, they I think they lose sight of what it is. And, and, and those guys, I know, they may not come right out and say it, but, you know, I can read between the lines. They think, you know, if you don't want to do this, stay at home, or if you can't afford it, don't come. Right. Well, that is true. We could all do that, but we love to do it. We are hooked. We're, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm as excited about going racing right now. I'm 61 years old, and I'm as excited about going racing right now as I it was when I was 16 years old. And I still love to do it. And I work my ass off to do it. And does it hurt more than it used to? Does it take me longer to do things than it used to? And blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I'm still ready to go. And I can work, I can work my butt to death and get four hours sleep. And when I wake up and know I'm going racing, I can get right out of that bed and jump up like I'm 16 years old and go again. It's amazing, and, isn't it? it? It is. It is. So... You know, yes, I don't have to do it. Nobody's making me do it, but I want to do it. But I want a place to race it. I want somewhere that I can be competitive. And, you know, I have made this, I've said this statement at least a dozen times, but right now within a, within five hours of where I'm at in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, I would dare say that there is at least 30 six-second or three-second pro-mod cars sitting parked. And and 75% of those cars are better, are nitrous cars. And they're sitting there because they have nowhere to race, and the guys that own them love them just like I do, and they don't want to get rid of them because they know if they sell it, they can never afford another one. And they don't have anywhere to race or have something to race. Sure, you can slow it down and do something if you want to, but this is drugs, people. You don't want to, you know, after you smoke crack, you don't want to go back to drinking beer. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, right? I mean, it's funny, and it happens fast. I mean, I can't. It it is like, you know, it, it it is just crazy, you know, to think that, that we have all this equipment and this stuff, you know, I mean, I have had, I've worked all my life to have what I have. I don't have a lot. I got a, I got a truck and trailer that I've had since not since 2000 and and 2000, I got the trailer in 2000 and the truck in 2005 and I still got it. And I got, you know, equipment tools and things that, that 
you know, I don't have all the best. I have the best equipment I've ever had in my life right now. I got a Jerry Bickle race car and, and, a, and a, a rear Morrison motor and a, and a Mark Mickey transmission and, and Brandon Schweitzer fuel injection. And I've got more, the best stuff I've ever had. But everything I've got is outdated. <laughs> everything I have is outdated. And, and you know, it'll run. I mean, I feel like I can run probably low 370s, maybe even a high 60 in good air. Uh, when I get it all figured out, but when I'm doing that, you know they're going to be running 350s. The top top tier guys are going to be running 350s, and I'm going to be running 370. I mean that's kind of that's about where it's going. And, well, it's but there and, and it's weird know. because there's I experienced this actually last weekend right with my dad. We went racing and it had been right. a long time that we since we'd all been racing together. And yeah, go out yeah. and run like that. And it's funny just the impact because it's the same thing. My dad, it, you guys are the same age. And it was it's crazy to see uh, just the spark in his eye. Like, I mean, he's a cancer survivor. He's he's, you know, works, you know, very, very similar to you. Right. Runs an auto repair shop, right. works all day, every day, uh, seems to never slow down. And it was just amazing to see the sickness kind of set in on everybody going, Oh boy, you know, we were going to go run one time this year. And now it's like, we can't find another pro stock drag race quick enough. You know, we're, it's (laughs) unbelievable how quickly it happens, but it's like, as hard as it is, there's, there's few things as rewarding. Michael and I talked about this the other day that it's very hard to explain to somebody once you've kind of gotten, once you've developed that investment and you've busted your knuckles and you've worked all night and you've sweat your ass off and you've put the awning up and done all these horrible kind of tasks in the blazing sun for the 10 millionth time, winning a round, even making a good run, it's, it's euphoric. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell people all, I tell, I tell my guys here at my shop, you know, they look at me when I come back, did you win? Did you win? I said, no. I said, I qualified. I said, you know, that was a major feat. And, you know, I might have won a round or something. But I, I tell them, I said, this is the hardest, most, um, I won't say disappointing, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever work for and get the least amount of success in your life. And you keep doing it. It's and insane. you want to do it because you love it. You love it. It just, it, it's got something. It, when Once you get to gets his claws into you you just can't put it away i mean you know you you look at the guys look at look at you know drag racing has got to have the oldest um, uh, amount the the largest oldest amount of participants of any kind of sport oh for sure in it because we're we're able to do it and the you know the level you you can still compete i mean you know look at ricky smith i mean ricky smith 65 years old and you know this guy can pop up and win a race anytime, and you know he and Chad basically he and Chad go there and run that car by themselves. You know they may have one other guy usually, but it's like they're they you know they're amazing. And but it's the love of doing it. You know it's the love of doing it and the you know it's it's I don't I don't know. Like I said, I love it every time I see your. Your your slogan, just make drag racing great again, you know. And I anything I prom- I support anything, you know. The just like the the street outlaws thing and the no prep thing. I mean, would I do that? 
hell no. I mean, I'm I'm not going to do it. It's it's hard enough not to wreck these damn cars on a prep racetrack. Am I going to go run on an unprepped track? But am I glad to see it have success? Because yes, I am. Because it is making drag, it's keeping drag racing alive in some way. Is keeping it alive. Is it what you and I really want to do? No. But does it keep drag racing alive? Then, yes, yeah, so be it. You know, the pink thing. You know, it was hokey to us that really know drag racing. But it did it did it educate a whole bunch of people about drag racing and spark some interest for people in drag. Sure racing? enough. Hell yes, it did. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, so I mean, it, it's just whatever makes it happen. I mean, if when I look at a when when I look at a race, the, the most sickening thing that I see or witness at a race is nobody in the stands. And that is, I mean, from a competitor's point of view, you race better when them stands are full. I, I mean, it's, it, it, and it's got to be that way. I've never been a, uh, an athlete. I, uh, you know, I'm not a, not a ball player or anything like that, but I know it motivates these guys when the, when the crowd's there and they're cheering and making noise and, and raising hell, it motivates them. And it's the same way in drag racing. And when you go to these things and there's nobody in the stands, the only way you can excite yourself is to do a big, long burnout, you know, or something and get yourself pumped up. But, you know, the, the, the 200 people that are in the stands, I mean, it is, it's heartbreaking. What I do you think's changed? Because way. I remember going, because there's a couple of things that I was thinking about even over the weekend at the PDRA race in Maryland, which, you know, had a modest crowd in a small crowd. I know that they, you know, I don't think it's any sort of secret. I'm sure they were disappointed. That's one of those tracks that historically can draw a crowd. And I'm, you know, I know that I was a little bit surprised considering the, you know, blue skies and sun out that there weren't more people there. And I think back, you know, and I, I don't know what to point to exactly because, you know, I think back to some of the IHRA, and I don't have near the history with the IHRA. I started going to IHRA races in like the early 2000s, so you're way further down the road on this, and maybe you can give us a little bit of insight, but I remember going to those races, and I don't mean to talk at a turn, but they were calamities. You know, I remember there were oil downs and reschedules and taking time. You know, it's not like they were massively expedited shows that ran super smoothly. But, man, there were people everywhere. I mean, I remember going to San Antonio, the races that I went to in Rockingham and Darlington. I mean, they they were Cordova. They were extremely well attended. And I guess in pro mod and pro stock propped the show up back then. So I guess I look forward. I'm going, man. Has culture and society changed so much that they don't care about this type of stuff? But then you see the ratings that Street Outlaws and these guys, the Rebuilder Shows and Garage Rescue. car I mean, it seems like automotive stuff. St- hell, they're making movies about racing. You know, I mean, it still mm-hmm. seems like it moves the needle. So what are we doing wrong over here? I mean, what do you I mean? Because you saw the same thing, right? It's not like. Those IHRA shows were three hours long and perfectly choreographed. Oh, yeah, no, they, they were, yeah, they they were terrible. But I think it, it is a combination. The, the you know, every it has changed. There is, you know, there's so many things that you that are competing for the entertainment dollar. I mean, you know, in the day when this thing was so big, these were like the these were happening events. These were things that were you know, uh, scheduled that, that, you know, happened annually and people plan for it. And there were more gearheads. Young people were gearheads and 
you know, they grew up around all this stuff that were, you know, they, they were car oriented. I mean, I can't tell you how many young people I hear about parents telling me that their 16 or 17 or 18 year old kid doesn't even have a license, you know, and makes me want to cry. It's just a lot of that has changed, but I think it takes, I think it takes a bigger show to draw a crowd now. I think it takes, you, you got to have the heavy participant of the sportsman cars, you know, I mean, PDRA, they have a lot of classes, but they don't have, they don't have all the classes and it is, you know, I, I don't know what they could do. The only thing that, that everybody says, and, and, and it does, it does draw people is, you know, it takes nitro. Nitro is a big thing, you know, funny cars and, and top fuel cars, but yet, you know, it's not practical. You can't have that at every race, but you know, IHRA back in the day, they had everything, you know, they had everything from the fat, they had everything from Kenny Bernstein to, to Ray head running stock, you know, they, they had everything and everything in between. And so it appealed to every gearhead there. The midways were packed with vendors. People went, people went just to, see the latest products and and buy some of the stuff that they saw in the magazines and you know it was just such a i don't know it was such a um a different time it was different and and i don't i really don't know exactly but in my eyes that's part of what it's got to be it's just got to it's got to be a bigger event and it's got to be more there's got to be a lot more promotion you know just go back and look at ADRL now granted over 50% of the people that were there didn't know a damn thing about drag racing they didn't know which end of the track that the car started at when they got there but they it was a crowd of people it exposed them to drag racing and I fully believe it may have been a small a small amount, but it had to make some new fans. It had it to. Had to make, it had to. It had to. It had to make new fans. It saw. It put. It put butts in the seats, which in turn sold concessions, which in turn sold souvenirs, and on down the line. And they had to tell somebody. It was a happening thing, and it took a lot of work and it took a lot of money. And Kenny Nowling, love him or hate him, you know, he was a good promoter. And he, he, you know, he, he motivated his people. And he had those people out there giving away those free tickets. And he had sponsors to pay for the free tickets. And, and it wasn't really free because they had to pay something. You know, they were paying for the parking or whatever. But it's how your mind worked. It's how the consumer sees it. It was the ticket was free. If I had to pay the taxes or the, or the whatever the byproduct was of it, they were fine with that, and the byproduct was the parking. But well, it's interesting you know, they, because they were, you mentioned that the uh, how things have changed and the events have to be bigger. And I was just you mentioned like stick and ball sports earlier, and I just thought to myself, I can only imagine, and I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs, but I can only imagine what the first Super Bowl looked like in 1967 versus what mm-hmm. the Super Bowl looks like 
in 2018 and 19. I mean, I venture to say that in the 60s, they had a football game and people came out. Right. Now they've got yeah. a rock concert. They've got a fashion show. They've got parties every day. They've got week-long happenings. They've got all these things. And they happen to have a big football game. And it's funny because right. if you really look at like the promotion and overall operation of a drag racing event, I don't know that we can identify that many differences in the execution of one of these events from, you know, the earliest events in kind of its heyday, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s um, to, to what a drag race looks like today. We qualify on Friday and Saturday and we run a race on Sunday. And I mean, there's mm-hmm. no doubt that the pro that the the Super Bowl or the World Series these events take on a life of their own. I mean, th- there's so much on top of the actual happening that we're all there to see. It's almost like the main event kind of plays second fiddle to the the concert or whatever else they're going to have. And I think that that's right. We're probably tasked it, as a whole with starting to try to repackage what we do. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it takes it takes a lot of promotion, you know. You know, another thing, another organization that went through the same thing that I was a heavy participant of was that Super Chevy show. And, you know, I, I, I participated in that thing from 1986 to 1996. And that was only, at that time, Super Chevy at most all of the major racetracks, including in Indy, Maple Grove, uh, all those tracks, they were only second to NHRA in attendance. And I witnessed it, and I saw it, and I tried to talk to him just like I tried to get somebody's attention at IHRA. And believe me, you know, I don't have all the answers, and and I'm just a, you know, I'm just a common-sense, practical application guy. That's my specialty. But when I see something is wrong or whatever, I can see it, and I can usually analyze it to, to a point that it may not be perfect, but I can see that this is what's wrong. And I tried to talk to Roger Gustin about this thing. And Roger Gustin, you know, rest his soul, he, he is, you know, passed away. His whole family's gone now, but except for Bill. But he ran that damn thing in the ground by being, he was basically a Nazi, you know, and he was going to do it his way or the highway. And it didn't matter. And, and Roger, Roger was a, was a, a showman. He was the he was the lava jet car guy, and if anybody knew about selling yourself to sponsors and and promoting and doing things, I mean, I ran two hundred plus miles an hour in the freaking dark at Memphis Motorsports Park, doing a press release. For the, doing a TV show and a, and a press, I mean a, a, a press whatever press conference, so to speak, and for me and Roger, me and Roger and the wheel stander went there, and something got it behind. And if you went to Memphis in the early days, there was no lighting back then on the racetrack. This was a daytime racetrack, and they didn't even have hardly any light. The lights were in the pits. <laughs> and they had no lights on the drag strip because, you know, it was part of the road course that was there. And so we go out there, and I'm telling you, it's so freaking dark that I could hardly see the other end of the racetrack. And and I made a damn six-second, 200-mile-an-hour run on the, down this racetrack <laughs> into the dark. And 
Roger did it in his freaking jet car, and the wheel stander did it on two wheels. But we were all, we were there, and we had, I mean, the next day this place was packed. This was on the news. We did this like on third Wednesday or Thursday, you know, before the race. And this place was packed, you know, because people saw that, you know, and, and I had the world's fastest 55 Chevy, and Roger had a jet car, and and I don't even know who the wheel stander was at that time. But anyway, we all had these unique vehicles, for one, and we were there, you know, the, the, the news, the media, everybody was doing these things. I mean, I used to do things. I have done the freaking six o'clock sports in a major market. I did it in Colorado in, in, in the, doing the Denver race, did a live sports show that I'm sitting beside whoever the, you know, Joe sportscaster is for that area that he's, you know, renowned sports guy. And I'm doing the freaking sports with him and talking about drag racing and did a pretty damn good job of it. And, uh, you know, but it's what put people in the seats. I mean, I used, they used to, they used to pay me. They would give me extra money at the Super Chevy events to go and do the media tour. And I would go out, and I might go to two or three TV stations, wake up in the morning, at, get up at, at 5 o'clock in the morning, and be ready for the 6 o'clock call from the radio station, the hot radio station in the area, and talk to them multiple times during a two or three, or during drive time, you know, so I could be on there and talking about drag racing but it took a lot of work but but i was willing to do it i always said you know it's back to my same thing that i said earlier about promoting drag racing if it promotes drag racing and makes it survive i will do it you know in the early days of racing when when the when the media when it really got going and we had tv shows we, we you know we had mike joy you know we had aaron green we had brett kepner i mean all these guys they were awesome but when they wanted an interview, they wanted somebody that wouldn't shut up, just like I want right now. You know, they come get me. It's get, important, man. Charles. I mean, talk I, about it. I'm telling you, Charles, and, I, I get goose. I, I'm an emotional kind of uh, sensory dude, but I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, it is so important, and it seems to be like a bit of a lost art. I used to do the same thing when we start the magazine. I've, I've told stories about yourself. I've told spor- stories about Scotty Cannon and Shannon Jenkins that I could remember calling you guys. And it was Mm -hmm. almost like, I I mean, I've heard you do, I mean, when it was Shannon, I could hear him take a drag on a cigarette. With you, I might hear you clear your throat. But then it became Charles Carpenter, the pro-mod driver, or Shannon, the Iceman Jenkins, you know, the world's fastest 55, the godfather of pro-mod. I could hear you guys in your your demeanor just, just embrace this persona, and it doesn't seem like... That's something that's lacking today, and I, I feel like whenever I look at it, everybody's posting their thing on social media and Facebook or whatever, and they think that that's promoting, right? But you're exactly right. I mean, I don't know, I don't hear that many stories about guys getting up to be on the 6 a.m. driving radio show. You know, I've done that yeah. the last several years. You know, for you know about a week at a time every morning, up doing radio interviews for our World Series of Pro Mod in Denver, because that's what it takes. I mean, you're doing every radio oh, yeah. show, and and in sometimes. 
you kind of feel like you're wasting your time. But you got to do those ones too. I mean, I remember two years ago I did an interview with a guy on a 5 a.m. a.m. radio thing, a little sports show, and I could tell this guy didn't know, you know, anything about Mm -hmm. what I was talking about. But you got to do those too, right? I mean, you got to do those and hope that one, you know, one, two, three, ten people hear that. And maybe for if if you're lucky, they'll buy a ticket or they'll they'll click on something that they see online, whatever, and somehow kind of in, interact with what you're doing. But that's the promotion that I think has been lost with all these tools available to us in 2019, all these digital things and whiz bang, you know, electronic things, which are great. But they are just they're just additional pieces of the they're just another drawer in your toolbox. You know, you can't yeah. forego just because you got an electric impact. You know what I mean? Doesn't mean you aren't going to need a, a ratchet and socket set every time, every now and then. Exactly, exactly. It, it is, and, and you know, I saw a lot of guys that would not. You know, they dreaded a. Oh, they would. They would hide from an interview, or they would. They would dread somebody asking them to display their car or whatever. You know, and yeah, it's a lot of work, and it was hard, and sometimes you felt like you were doing it for nothing. But if it, if it made one, it's like you said, if it sold one ticket, one ticket more, it was another step on you being able to keep doing this, doing something you love. I mean, you know, I mean, I have, I mean, I, I don't I don't like to brag on myself, but I mean, I, I have raced in 40 states. Wow. I have traveled through all 48 contiguous states to get to those 40 states. And I have people, I still have people calling me. I have been through generations of people of you know taking pictures and with their kids and then their kids and on down the line and sending me stuff and calling me i had a man call me just two days ago and wanted to tell me how much i impressed him this man was 70 years old and he wanted to tell me how much i impressed him at a race and he wanted to he saw something As a matter of fact i think he saw the picture in drag illustrated of that that you guys put in there when we were at Darlington and he he couldn't believe I had a Camaro which is you know that's everybody can't believe that but he just wanted to know was I still that same Charles Carpenter that raced and you isn't know, that amazing so it, it it is it's amazing and and you know yes I know everybody everybody can't have the success that I have and 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 you know like I said earlier I may never win another race but I'm not ready to stop trying, and I'm not ready to stop trying to make drag racing great again. I want I want to see it go because I put my whole life into this. I've been doing this since I was 14 years old, and I don't want to quit. I don't want to quit, and and it makes me feel good to walk back there in my race shop and see my car sitting there. So. If I well, like I want you to I keep can. doing it. I want you to keep doing yeah, it. I mean, we need it. guys like you to keep doing it. And I know I've had you on here for a minute, but I want to, a couple last things here. That when you think back on forty-five years of doing this, I mean, do you have to? What? Give me a crazy story. I mean, you used to get paid to show up, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you would tow I mean, all across the country. I mean, take me through. Just tell me a story. Tell me whenever, I mean, the one that Michael talks about a lot is when you guys went, when you went out west to do all these match races and stuff. I mean, is it hard for you to even believe that you were getting paid to show up and make some runs? I mean, you know, I would have guys, we honestly could not do all the races that I got calls for. 
And I would have to sit down and take a calendar and look at it. And when we did our, our Western tours, you know, I would try to get as many races as I could. And at times I would go out there and be gone. I would stay out there for six weeks racing and I would race just, you know, if the races weren't a multi-day race, I would race in different places. I mean, I might race somewhere in, in Oregon on one night and then be in Sacramento, California the next night. And I could be traveling through out there somewhere going between races and not have something scheduled. And I could call Dave Smith at Sacramento, or I could, I could call, um, I'm reaching out for his name, Bill new at, at Boise, Idaho and say, Hey, I am somewhere here. You know, I'm looking to make a little money. You know, they'd have me come and I built, I mean, um, Dave Smith, he had me race a freaking nitro car. I raced a nitro car. It, it, I was su- su- supposed to race a blown 62 Chevy. We were going to make one run, and they were having nostalgia nitro cars. That was uh, uh, Dave Dave Smith that, that ran Sacramento. He was involved in it. He owned the car. He didn't drive it. He owned the car. And they were having that race, a nostalgia race there that weekend. I mean, and these were like they were some like fuel altered looking cars and and some some you know front engine cars but still they were they were pretty fast uh, they were like i think the the fastest of the cars were maybe maybe 620s or something like that but still in it we're talking this was in the in the 80s this was in the late 80s and so i was going to race this 62 chevy a blown car they tried to start that car all freaking day <laughs> they must have <laughs> they probably had to change the starter i mean they it would not run they just spin it over and they tried and they take it apart and they worked on it and they worked on it and they worked on it. i mean it, it, it got to be it was comical i mean it, you know i hate to laugh at anybody struggling but it's like you can't start this thing all day and you, i mean you could have you know went and got another damn car by now i mean what are you doing <laughs> But anyway, long story short, it comes up at, at night, you know, he can't get the car started. So they want me to, they, uh, um, uh, Smith, Dave Smith is asking me, he said, uh, he said, what do you think about racing a nitro car? He said, you know, you got a problem with that? I said, no, I said, I don't have a problem. So they give me the fastest car they got there and outrun this damn thing. I outrun that car. I forgot. I ran like a low 20 high teen or something like that at at you know like 235 or something like that and this thing ran i forgot what he he ran a in in this you know low sixes also but i treat his ass and i outrun him and at this place they went wild i couldn't get back down the return road i mean people are coming out i mean it's crazy how much they love the racing but that kind of thing i had multiple times i raced at um um Ed Jones, the wheel stander, he he ran a little racetrack in I think in Pocatello, Idaho. I ran an alcohol car there because I was racing Wayne Torkelson and he broke, and they had some alcohol funny cars there, and we raced the alcohol funny car and outrun the alcohol funny cars. Now you talk about as the crowd goes wild, as they say, you know that's it. But but we did all kind of stuff like that, and and what did you, you guys know, do to maintenance? Th- I mean, what did you have to do? 
Like, what did it look like? Where did you work on the car? Like, so if you're out on the road for six weeks, did you just service it to, you know, like before you left to the next track? Hotel parking lots. Um, I had a good friend of mine, and he actually, he he was, he worked for me for a few years. He moved here, but his name was Chick Anderson, and he was in the Air Force. And he lived on Travis Air Force Base. And we raced. California loved us back then, and, and we would go out there and race at, uh, uh, matter of fact, uh, Kyle Seipel that you just had your, your newest magazines, got him on the cover. His mom, Georgia, she ran Sonoma then, back then. And they would have us there for Super Chevy, and then they would have us there for other things, you know, some kind of maybe their own deal, their own match race thing or whatever that they were putting together. But anyway, we would be in that area, and my buddy Chick then of course this is how uh, a sign of the times but he just had my name at the front gate and i'd roll up there to the front gate and just roll right in with this all this rig and you know uh, basically a bomb you know i got i got nitrous oxide i got racing gas i got anything in the world you know to make a bomb with back here with me in this trailer and i'm just rolling in this place but you know that was just another time that was another era and, uh, but we would go, they, they would let us go on, a, they had a, um, a hospital, they had built a new hospital. We'd go to the parking lot of the old hospital. I changed the engines there. I'd do all kind of maintenance. But, you know, we, we'd, we'd do it, you know, just like the old pictures that you see of the 60s and 70s of the guys working in parking lots. That's what we were doing. I mean, we just set up, um, I set up in a hotel parking lot in uh, Milan, Michigan in the, in the late 80s, I believe it was, early 90s. And we had done some kind of exhibition there for the five, six, seven club that week. And I had a brand new engine with me. And so after we did this exhibition thing, we went back to the hotel and I proceeded to change engines. It was just me and, and a crew guy at that time, Johnny Roberts, race barn motorsports, Johnny Roberts. Yep. And, uh, so I had, we, we set up there and my God rest his soul, my buddy Waddy, uh, with NOS, He's sending me plumbing, you know, no engines, no two engines are ever the same. So the new one was always different. And so he's next day airing me plumbing. I think he had to do it like three times that week, you know, fittings, hosians, you know, making up hoses for me and all this stuff. (laughs) And we put that engine in that, in, in that hotel parking lot. We went to Milan and this was before pro mod. There was still a top sportsman thing or whatever. But they were doing the shootouts that Mike Thermos had got them to do. This is, was a, the you know the preliminary pro mod thing. This is what led up to it. And um, I went there and I won that race that night with that brand new engine, ran 200 miles an hour, which 200 miles an hour was still an elusive thing at that time. And uh, uh, raced against Michael Martin in the finals there, and and uh, with all this stuff. But you know we like I said we we got to do things. I met Zora. I, I displayed at the GM factory in Detroit and met Zora Duntoff, which you got to be an older guy or a, or a history buff to know. You know, Zora Duntoff was the was the Corvette guy, the V8 guy, and I met him there. We hit it off. I have a I have a picture on the wall here behind me of an autographed picture that he signed one of mine. He didn't have anything of. Uh, to sign for me, he signed one of my handout cards. Well, and it's crazy because and, the father of the Corvette, right? And then yes, this is how yeah, I want to book yeah. in this, you know. Uh, th- when you look back at all but, this, the godfather of yeah. Pro Mod, right? Uh, that's it, it, that's how it, you were referred. Do you have like a 
Do you feel any sense of like a proud papa thing when you look at this deal and think about how many people have come and gone and still do this and still aspire to do it? I mean, there are guys right now working their 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 tail off here this morning because they dream of going pro mod racing someday. Oh, I do. I mean, I, I'm very proud of it, and and you know, I'm very humble. I, you know, I, I don't have a big ego. That's a that's part of why. If I've had any success in racing, is I don't have a big ego. There, there's so much ego in racing, drag racing, you know, and for the wrong reasons. And I just, I just love to race. That's what I, I'm, I used to tell this story so many times. You know, people, you know, the the world's fastest 55 Chevy thing. I never, I never planned on any of that. I never, never engineered that. I just love to race. <laughs> And I couldn't afford to get another car, so I just kept racing my 55 Chevy and kept modifying it to do whatever I could do. And then when they gave me the nitrous oxide, you know, Katie barred the door. (laughs) And so, you know, it was like, you know, it was just what I love to do. And and it it still is. I I don't, you know, I don't think I'm anybody special or or deserve any kind of – special privileges but i i appreciate the recognition of it it makes me proud to think of it and 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 i know that you know someday that when i can't race anymore it'll be really it'll be something to to reminisce on that'll really be cool it's an amazing thing charles it really is and i and the coolest part of it is that you're still out here doing it at a high level where i mean it's 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 a really amazing thing to see because that's when you think about all the different stuff that's gone on to see out there running 370s at 200 mile an hour in the eighth mile. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing, and I'm I'm looking forward to. And I, I really hope my goal is to go racing with you guys one one weekend this fall. So hopefully That'd I can go great. lend a hand. Can. So well, hey, thank you, you so much, Charles. I appreciate you taking the time, and I, I apologize for burning up your morning. I'm sure you got stuff to do in the shop. Hey, you, like I told you, I could do this all day. So you know, <laughs> it don't matter. Everything's secondary when you get into this mode, but. I want to thank you for what you do, for what you've done for drag racing. You have, honestly, I mean, the magazine, you know, what you and all your guys do, I mean, it's awesome, and everybody that sees it loves it. And every issue is laying on my in my lobby out here, and I got people looking at it every day. So uh, it's an awesome thing, and, and, and you're, you're doing your part in it, and you're, you've made your mark, and it'll always be there in drag racing too. Well, I appreciate it a lot, Charles, and and I hope you know your your uh, your your little man there, Mike Carpenter, has been a huge. Uh, I couldn't have done it without him. We couldn't have done this. He's been such a great friend to me, and it's been an incredible journey with him. You know, and it's 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 I don't know. We definitely we always joke because we've lived like halfway parallel lives. Both our dads run small yep. auto repair shops, right? You guys are the same age. Right. Mike and I right. are the same age. We both have two kids. We both. It's just an interesting thing, and to have worked together you know 1500 miles apart or whatever for all these years it's kind of an amazing thing but thank you very much we and it's this funny thing because it's just the same deal i just love this stuff i love it so much that it hurts it's almost embarrassing at times because i can't i can't shake loose of it it's all you know i was complaining to my wife the last several weeks that i was burnt out right i'm burnt out god i just go into this and go into that and 24 7 and I had an I had an opportunity to stay home last weekend, Charles. And then I found out my dad was going racing. And the next thing I know, I'm buying a six hundred dollar <laughs> plane ticket to to Maryland last minute to fly out there and go racing. And it was funny. I came home and she's like, "Why are you so bouncing around, pepping your step?" And I'm like, well, I, "I hate to say it, but I guess drag racing fixed it." 
I, I don't yeah, know. You know what I mean? Right. It's just so sad <laughs> that here I am burnt out, but you go to the racetrack yeah. one time uh, and get on the other side of the fence. And I know that's been a challenge for Mike too, is that we've spent so much time on the, in the pits with a, with a dog in the fight that it's hard yep. to go to the racetrack and, and report or stand around in politic. It's very difficult and it's been hard for me. And it was, uh, it was nice to kind of get those juices flowing again. And I hope to get to go do that with you guys this year. Yeah, that is great. I mean, it, it is. And, and, and I'm very proud of Michael. I mean, I, I'm so proud of what he's done with, with, with everything. And I'm just, I'm so proud that drag racing is, is, is helped him learn his living. So, you know, that just, that makes me smile. You and me both brother. Well, Hey, thank you so much, Charles. Get to work. I'll do the same. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.